right. Good morning and welcome to Trailblazing Techs. What's up, Jamie? Hey, how's it going? Good. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you. Are you doing anything fun on Easter or are you just hanging out? I uh, did some chores. Stella and I are hanging out, my dog, and uh, I've got some work to do this afternoon, but going to keep it pretty low key. Cool. Cool, cool. It snowed here, so it doesn't look like anyone's doing any Easter egg hunts or anything like that, so pretty low-key is here as well. But um, before we go any further, I uh, do want to introduce you, everyone. This is my brother, James Metcalf, and depending on kind of how you know him or at what point in his life you know him, you might know him as Jamie. Uh, if you grew up with him or you know him through me, you might know him as James. You might know him as Jim, uh, but wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm James Metcalf. I graduated Marietta College, class of 2015, uh, with a petroleum engineering degree. Uh, since then, I've been working out in West Texas uh, for about, you know, the past five years or so. And you're in Midland, right? Yeah. Yeah, I live in Midland. I moved here about four years ago. And, cool. Uh, been here so ever since. what is Midland closest to in Texas? Uh, okay, so you have the very southeast corner of New Mexico. Uh, and if you go straight east of that about, I don't know, 70 miles. That's where Midland is. It's also two hours south of Lubbock, five awesome. hours north of Austin, cool. five hours west of Dallas. So it's uh, it's smack dab in the middle of nowhere, but it's a pretty good town with good people. Which city do you frequent the most outside of Midland, of course? Probably Denver for work. Um, I like to go to Houston as much as I can, but I don't find myself there as much as I'd like. But, you know, probably probably Denver. Yeah, it's difficult so, to travel from here, so it's usually just work-related. And how have you liked uh, sleeping on our couch when you've come to visit in Denver? It's pretty comfortable. Yeah. Uh, Love Sack. Yeah. Love Sack makes couches. No, I'm ready um, for you to have a official guest bedroom, though. We are waiting to order all of that after the quarantine. Um, last thing, since you're originally from Houston, what is the one thing you miss the most about Houston? Oh, Wow. Uh, probably the variety of restaurants. Midland has a couple nice restaurants and a decent amount of variety, um, but it's it it it's nothing compared to Houston. Yeah, uh, just yeah, the for, environment of Houston is what I miss. For sure, yeah. And so for those of you listening, I'm we're both originally from Houston, and uh, I recently moved to Denver last September. Uh, so there's a lot of Houstonians up here, and I think Denver's restaurant scene is definitely getting better. But uh, Houston restaurants. I don't know. I, I can't compare it to anything else. It's just, it's so great. But let's go ahead and, and move on. And so to kind of provide some background on why I decided to do trailblazing techs was, you know, I found myself wanting to connect with people. I think most of us can relate to that. Uh, I'm certainly doing Zooms. I know you and I FaceTime all the time, doing Zoom meetings with my friends. I do Zoom a lot anyway with work. Um, texting, calls, social media, but there's something to be said about sharing stories and actually sitting down and having conversations. And so I found myself thinking about all the interesting people I have in my life that have great stories, great success stories, great backgrounds, fascinating interests. And I wanted to share those stories. Um, and a lot of the people that I had in mind, you is one of them, is that there's a there's resiliency and there were some obstacles you had to overcome to be where you are today. And so I think in the climate that we're in with the, the, the COVID-19 and quarantine and the market, and for those people either entering the job market that are graduating or people who have now suddenly found themselves looking for jobs, I think there is a great opportunity to share stories about overcoming these hurdles that, you know, down the road, you will be successful and set you up for, for success. And Stella, so why don't you tell everyone, um, what type of dog is Stella? Stella's a silver lab. She just yeah. turned five in January. Wow. And uh, she's a little bit of a pain in the butt. I think she's tired of me being home so much right now. Yeah. She's my cat. in like 10 hours a day while I'm gone. So. Poor thing. Yeah. My, no. uh, my cat Kettle will probably make an appearance. Um, maybe. She's downstairs sleeping. So who knows when she comes back. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I wanted to share your story, especially because you graduated in 2015 at a time when oil and gas was 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 crumbling basically probably the worst time you could enter that job market back in 2015 and share your story but before we even do that i want to even back it up a little bit further and talk about your time at st andrews in delaware so you're one of the few people i know that went to boarding school uh you were there for your junior and senior year right mm -hmm. yep. yep and so you know 
I know there was a couple factors of you going there. Uh, for one, you know, in Houston, rowing or the sport of crew was not big, and that was something you wanted to pursue. Um, it's also a fantastic school. So why don't you go ahead and share with everyone kind of how St. Andrews popped up on your radar um, and what, what made you decide to pursue that? Well, it's a little bit of a long story, so I'll breeze through it for the sake of brevity. But um, so, you know, our parents went to college with a couple people that went to St. Andrews. And so they always knew about it. Um, Dad had always wanted me to, you know, explore rowing. I think he liked the idea and so did I of trying it before I got to college um, so that I have some experience with it. And then also just to kind of broaden my horizons on the education side of things. Um, so when you went to college, at the same time you were applying to college, I was applying to boarding school. Um, and, you know, I got in and I showed up and, you know, I can tell you it was a lot different. One of the main reasons I wanted to go was I didn't really like the, um, you know, the massive classroom, 4,000 kid high school that I was in, uh, in the Woodlands. And St. Andrews is like a 350 student body um, with just four classes of uh, freshman through senior. And so you have a lot of small classes. Um, it's a completely different style of education. It's pretty immersive. So I ended up there, uh, joined the rowing team uh, at St. Andrews. It's also pretty much a requirement that you do more than just one sport. Um, so I also, I wrestled for one year um, and, uh, um, you know, and I started rowing and I kept playing football, which I really enjoyed playing football. So, you know, I, I spent two years at St. Andrews. It afforded me the ability, I spent a summer in Philadelphia uh, in between my junior and senior year. I spent about half the summer and that was really cool. I was on UPenn's campus um, and I was there rowing for Penn AC. And so that was just a really cool experience. I uh, got to meet a lot of really, really interesting people while I was there. Um, and doesn't Penn AC produce a lot of, I don't want to say Olympians, but, you know, world-class rowers? Yeah, it's one of the two main boathouses in Philadelphia, which is kind of the mecca of rowing. Um, it's Penn AC and Vesper are kind of the two premier rowing clubs uh, in Philadelphia on the Schuylkill River. And uh, mine was a summer program for high school kids. And, you know, a lot of the kids that, that, that were rowing with me were, you know, honestly much better than I was. And they, they ended up being pretty successful at, you know, big prestigious um, Ivy League schools. So um, it was pretty competitive too. I, had, I probably had never been in a competitive nature like that before. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously growing up in Texas, fo most boys play football um, that you had been playing since before middle school, if I remember correctly. And then rowing, dad had kind of uh, exposed us both to it. Um, but wrestling, when you started wrestling at St. Andrews, that kind of surprised me. So like, what, what did you learn from that? Um, cause it seems like a totally different sport and a whole different beast than any of the other things we, any other sport we had been exposed to. Yeah. And you know, I did that because I really didn't feel like, you know, there's only so many sports in the winter and I didn't feel like, you know, uh, squash or swimming or basketball was going to be my forte not um, basketball yeah definitely not basketball <laughs> and so rowing just seemed or not rowing wrestling just seemed to be one of those you know activities that was going to be very difficult uh, very stringent and uh you know probably add a little bit of discipline in my life and something that i needed when i was younger for those of you who know me um and i don't know i mean it was just a very difficult sport, especially coming in, you know, at 16 years old. And a lot of the people you were wrestling against have been wrestling since they were like six or seven. Yeah. Um, I honestly wasn't very good at it, but <laughs> it, 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 it was one of those things that I, I got into a really, uh, really dedicated mindset to get into really good shape because I could compete better at some of the lower weight classes. So I, you know, was kind of determined to get down to lower weight classes. So I wasn't wrestling guys that were not only heavy but pretty much all muscle which for those of you who also know me that's never been my forte is very muscular so and uh, you're tall too you're what six three yeah i'm six three so i'm pretty lanky and so when you're wrestling guys that are your weight much more lean and three inches shorter than you they, they've got a lot of leverage sure. and uh, 
I got rocked on a regular basis. <laughs> well, at least you tried it. I mean, I remember when you said you started wrestling, I kind of was shocked, but you know, Hey, power to you. So last thing to talk about at St. Andrews, which I always thought was interesting. You guys had classes on Saturdays, right? Yeah. Yeah. We went to class until, you know, I think the schedule was up until noon. So you had 8am to noon classes, but yeah, you might, it was, it was block scheduling on a two week period, similar to a college schedule, but with Saturdays included and, you know, so you might have one or two classes before before noon. And so we would go to class, then we'd play our football games on Saturday. It was pretty interesting. That's kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went out to visit you, I believe, your first year. So that would have been my freshman year of college. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember getting on campus, and it felt like something, you know, straight out of England or a castle or, you know, a campus that you wouldn't imagine for a high school. Um, and if I remember correctly as well, that's where Dead Poet Society was filmed, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's an old brownstone school built in uh, either 1927 or 1929 by the DuPonts. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful campus. They've got one main building. Um, Well, they have a massive main building, which most of the classes and all the boys live in. And then a bunch of peripheral buildings uh, when they added co-ed. So the women live across the gully, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then a fine arts building and stuff. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty cool campus. There's, it's a massive um, footprint. They own a whole lake. So they bought all the, um, all the acreage around this lake. They call it a pond, but it's pretty big. Yeah. And so on the weekends, you know, when the weather was nice, we'd go out and, you know, take canoes out or go swimming. And there was a big front lawn that went up to the lake. And you did graduate from St. Andrews. I'll spare everyone uh, the graduation story, but for those of you who know Jamie well, you know it's a, it's a hilarious story. I know when you were graduating, you were considering quite a few schools. You were considering Marietta. I remember you going on a visit to Syracuse, uh, even the Naval Academy. You got your, what is it, the congressional letter? Is that what it's called? Congressional recommendation. There we go. Yeah, you got that. Um, and so, you know, those are fantastic institutions, um, big names as well. So what ended up being your final, I guess, um, criteria or the final thing that made you decide, yes, Marietta College is where I want to go? Well, I'll be honest too, you know, uh, I was incredibly interested in the Naval Academy. Yep. But unfortunately, after getting my congressional recommendation, I made it through, I think, to the very last round of the rolling admissions. And I didn't get in uh, because they kind of, I guess they saw through me in terms of uh, how much I screwed off when I was younger. I, I had really good standardized testing scores and good grades in all the STEM kind of classes and then pretty poor grades in anything else. So I, I, it was pretty clear to them that I kind of focused on what I wanted to focus on and I didn't put very much effort into the things I didn't want to. Um, but so I didn't get into the Naval Academy. That was probably my number one choice just because I, I just thought that would be so cool, the experience. Um, I mean, it's the prestige and the gravitas of going to a university like that. Um, but then beyond that, you know, I was accepted to Syracuse. I was being recruited by the rowing team. And it really, when I took a step back, when I was comparing between Syracuse and Marietta, um, Marietta cut, just checked all the boxes. I mean, it had a it had a, a great rowing program for a small school. I mean, still competed on a high level, you know, every few years. It wasn't at the, you know, um, at the grandstands, like some of these other schools that I was looking at were every year, but it still competed at a very high level. It had petroleum engineering, had great recruiting for engineering, um, and had a longstanding name. And also you were there, uh, dad went there, mom went there, uncle Billy went there. So, um, it wasn't unfamiliar to the family to go to Marietta. Um, and so it kind of came down to, although I think I really wanted to go to Syracuse because of how successful their rowing program was at the time. Um, I decided to go to Marietta for kind of greater, bigger picture reasons rather than just having a really good four years athletically. I wanted to have a good four years athletically and academically and then kind of, you know, leverage that for what would be the rest of my career rather than figuring out what to do after I graduated. Yeah. And so um, Syracuse, so you graduated or you studied at Marietta um, Petroleum Engineering, but Syracuse did not have a pro- have that program. So what would you have studied if you went there? I would have, I would have gone for the mechanical engineering degree, um, oh. which is pretty broad. And there's a lot of mechanical engineering graduates every year. And you meet a lot of them in oil and gas, but they typically go to, you know, the A&Ms and the OUs and the the UTs of the world where there's heavy oil and gas recruiting as it is on campus. 
Got it. Got so, it. I really didn't see myself going into oil and gas, which I kind of always wanted to. If I went to Syracuse, I've been difficult. That's fair. And so kind of next point then, you know, growing up in Houston, growing up in Texas, oil and gas is, you know, one of the main industries. Um, I feel like most of the people we grew up with were, their parents were in the industry in some shape, way, or form. So you can't help but kind of be molded by that or influenced by that as well. But, you know, what was your, why, why did you decide to pursue it? Because obviously there was a lot of different engineering, little different, as you mentioned, you're good at STEM, you know, other STEM-related majors that you could have went into. What made you decide that specific of a degree, petroleum engineering? Well, I think when I was like 10, I told my mom that's what I wanted to do. You know, honestly, I've always looked up to my dad a lot. He was a our mom, man. our dad. It's all right. <laughs> um, but I've always looked up to dad a lot. And, uh, you know, he's a career oil and gas guy, grew up kind of in the thick of it. Um, and if I was going to go to Marietta, which was on my radar, it was pretty simple. I wasn't going to do anything else besides petroleum. I wasn't really interested in the geology side or the, the land negotiating side or anything like that. Um, and I knew I wanted to do engineering. So at Marietta, there's one engineering choice. And so that's pretty simple once you get to Marietta. Mm -hmm. But um, in general, it was just, you know, it's, it's, it's what I grew up in. I knew I was interested in it. Um, I, thought, I thought the things that you do in oil and gas, especially seeing what dad did for so long, were, you know, <clears throat> these, I don't know, these very complicated large scale projects that, that just seemed, um, you know, I don't know. It's so impressive. And sure. um, I still right now don't know what else I would do to get the kind of satisfaction that I get out of my job. So I'm glad I did it. Awesome. And, um, you know, while you were at Marietta, you had internships and, you know, internships in college are very common for for students, but it seemed that at least at Marietta, and I would imagine most engineering programs across the country, internships seem to be uh, pretty standard. It seems like everyone has one, at least, or at least in the last two years of their college career. Um, and so, you know, where were your internships? Why do you consider internships important? And just anything that you learned? Because um, I can't remember if you had internships all four years or just three years, but, you know, go ahead and elaborate. Yeah, so before I actually got to Marietta, I went out to Lafayette, Louisiana, <clears throat> moved into my uncle's house and got a job over at uh, National Oil Well Varco in their mud lab. Um, and that serviced, you know, a lot of their barge work and some of their South Texas work. And so we, we were basically just testing drilling fluids all day long. And uh, I got that for multiple reasons. I, uh, I wasn't allowed back in the house for a little while because I got in trouble. And so I went to Lafayette to go move in with my uncle. And I said, well, if I'm going to be here, I'm not just going to sit on the couch. So I went looking for a job. Um, but that one is important for multiple reasons, and I'll get to that after. But then after my freshman year, during recruiting during my freshman year, um, I got recruited for an internship with Southwestern Energy um, in uh, Arkansas. And I was in Damascus, Arkansas, uh, which is north of Little Rock by about an hour in the middle of nowhere. And so that was a production intern where we built up equipment all day long. So it was a very hands-on internship of basically, you know, you assumed a labor job to, to learn everything from the ground up. <clears throat> so I did that all summer. I got invited back uh, the next summer, and I was a completion engineering intern, um, also in Arkansas, but this time I was in Conway, which is only 30 minutes north of Little Rock. So out of Southwestern's um, uh, kind of Fayetteville field headquarters, and I had a pretty cool project that got scrapped because of a, a kind of a malfunction on location that ruined all the equipment I was supposed to be measuring, so I had an interesting summer just kind of running around watching as much stuff as I could. Some project got scrapped. I honestly had a pretty uh, dismal presentation of just showing pictures of the things that I watched. I mean, it was hard to learn anything without um, like a real project that you could work on. But and one thing, one thing just to stop you there, you know, sometimes that happened, right? Where the plan or the project you were working on goes upside down for whatever reason, right? In your case, something got messed up, maybe budget gets pulled kind of in my world. Um, but you have to find a way to kind of make the best of it. You have to find a way to continuously learn, show people that you're expressing interest, you want to learn. Um, and so even though your project didn't go as planned, you know, how, what were the proactive steps that you took besides like observing, like, did you reach out to people? You know, what did yeah, you do? Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what 
to do so I could really, it was all about the presentation at the end of the internship. So I was trying to find out what I could do to have a presentation. It was really difficult at the time because they have all these plans on this is your project. And when your project gets scrapped because of something that's out of your control, um, it's, it's difficult to recover from that quickly. But what I did was I spent basically as much time as I could out in the field. I'd leave at you know, 3.30 in the morning to go to the frack job, hit the safety meeting, stay there for 14 hours, go home and did that all week you know, for the rest of the summer. And I would go read the reports in the morning if there was a critical operation or something messed up on another well, I would go check that out. And, you know, it kind of came down to, um, I still just didn't have that great of a presentation because it was a lot of, you know, talking about things that I still hadn't learned enough about because I was just out in the field and I yep. saw it once. Um, but regardless, you know, I, after that summer, I didn't get invited back with Southwestern, which, you know, at the time I was devastated, but I do think that it worked out in the end because um, that next fall, I was looking for another internship between my junior and senior year. And I, uh, I landed on Endurance Resources, which was a private equity backed uh, oil and gas company out of Midland doing work in Southeastern New Mexico. And that so was kind is, of the first- I'm sorry, what does, uh, what does private equity backed mean? Um, it's basically a, a, a funded company by, uh, you know, a, a group or an organization that has a bunch of funds and they, they go back with a, a certain amount of equity or money. They give you a, a, let's say they give you $300 million to go, you know, purchase acreage or, um, you know, develop acreage or drill and complete. And so it's, it's the funds that somebody makes available to you so that you can, you can basically build a company and not have to do it completely from scratch or from, uh, uh, like on a cash flow basis. Sure. You, you you build up the value and then when you sell, you know, the money is basically paid back with some kind of multiplier and then, you know, all the executives get to, you know, make a good amount of money if uh, everything's successful. Sure. But I ended up there and that was really good. Uh, the The drilling engineer that I was supposed to be working with wasn't there anymore when I showed up. And so I had to assume a lot of responsibility that I really didn't know anything about. And sure. my boss, Don Ritter was a, you know, really interesting guy that gave me a lot of latitude and taught me a lot of things and gave me the opportunity to work in what turned into, you know, a couple of years later, the most prolific basin in the world. So, you know, I was at Endurance uh, for that summer. I continued to work for them through my senior year and um, basically doing all of the, the progs and the permitting, the regulatory work, um, all, the, all the reporting and the summaries and also kind of planning special projects or working on special projects on the side. So that was, that was a really good way my senior year to make some money. Um, but then, you know, I, I was counting on them hiring me after college and everything started to change in 2014. And it was really at the end of 2014 when I realized I wasn't gonna have a, a secured opportunity at Endeavor anymore. And I had already said no to several interviews um, in the fall, which is the main recruiting season. Uh, so I took a couple interviews that fall and I'm oh, personally glad none of them worked out because I like where I am right now. Um, but it was very challenging. And so going into kind of Christmas that I guess right after I finished my finals, I started really buckling down on trying to find new opportunities. And I probably sent out a hundred resumes with a hundred custom cover letters. And I would go find any company that was doing work um, really in the Permian and specifically in the Delaware, because I had some experience there, regardless of the fact that it was kind of a high level internship, I still had experience. Um, and I tried to leverage that as best I could. And, uh, so after just sending out and sending out, I finally got in touch with a, a guy over at EOG, um, who was one of the recruiting guys and they were on a hiring freeze. And, um, you know, I decided, I made the decision basically to not go on spring break my senior year, but go to Midland for spring break my senior year and work uh, in the office at Endurance so that, you know, if they wanted to hire me, maybe they liked the fact that I skipped spring break, you know, yeah. and then also use that opportunity to, to network while I'm there for other jobs. And um, while I was there, I had the opportunity to interview with the drilling manager and the drilling advisor over at EOG in West Texas. And, um, that kind of uh, was the spark that started it all. Yep. And um, I started as a contract basis because they were on a hiring freeze for employees. And after doing that for a couple of years, I went on uh, 
one is a you know a salaried employee so um it was a really good experience i liked the way that all my cards fell it was pretty sure. unique and i had like multiple moments of devastation on my way there but it all seemed to work out once i just kept trying and trying and trying and you know one of the best things i did was move to midland um yeah. and and avoid the temptation to you know require myself to be in houston yeah uh, and so. i think i think some of the conversations i've been having with people whether it's some you know friends of friends where their kids are graduating from college or um you know someone who is looking for a job i i find myself having the conversation of sometimes it takes sacrifice, right? You probably moving to West Texas at 21 years old was not exactly your most ideal place, but you knew that's where the opportunity was. And you're still there now. Um, you're doing well. Um, but at the end of the day, you were able to, you know, find that job and get the foot, get your foot in the door. And, and when you're 21 and fresh out of school, that's half the battle, right? Is just getting your foot in the door. Um, and showing people that, you know, you're here to work. Here's, you know, you're going to get experience. You're going to contribute to, you know, the organization or, you know, the engineering work that you need to do. And so I think keeping in the back of your mind, keeping your options open and doors open, don't just close it because, oh, I want to live in Houston or I don't want to go there, um, I think is really important. And I think that's part of the reason why you, your cards did fall the way they do. And so, you know, we talk about, and our parents say this, I think it was something our grandfather, grandpa Jim would say is, you know, um, luck is when, what is it? Opportunity meets preparedness. Yeah. I think somebody much more famous than grandpa. Jim I know, but, it, but he loved to repeat it. He, and, and so um, does but that. yeah, it's opportunity is, uh, or luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. So, and, and that's what happened to you was you had, you had some experience, you had some missteps, you had, um, you know, yeah, I had my fair share of mistakes and missteps that were pretty, uh, you know, self-inflicted too. Sure. And then there were things that were out of your control and, you know, you kind of threw yourself a little pity party real quick. And then after that, you know, you didn't go on spring break, you went to West Texas yeah. and you just showed people that you were serious. And I think, I think that's, that speaks volumes. It takes guts to do that as well. Um, so, so you had those internships and, you know, you, you graduate from Marietta. And one thing I wanted to share, and I don't know if you can see your screen right now. I found this picture. I was kind of scrolling through and oh I think that is look at my lettuce. Yeah. Look at your hair. So that's your freshman year, my junior year. And we're outside. Where'd you live? Russell? Is that Russell Hall? Yeah, I think that's Russell. I lived okay. on the top floor, fourth floor, I think. Got it. And I lived my freshman year. I lived in Marietta Hall on the third floor. And then I moved to the fourth floor. It was like a cinder block prison cell. It was incredible. It was. Yeah, I mean, it was a great, I mean, I honestly loved living in a dorm for four years. Uh, I think it builds character, if you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, you end up graduating. You mentioned you you got your EOG gig, really kind of gave you that, that, that first step in your career. Um, talk about, you know, where you went after and why. Yeah, so I was at EOG for several years and... Um, you know, I, it really started to, to change. I was in the field for a while. My boss, Heath, brought me in uh, to kind of take care of this big project over uh, their drilling motors. It's directional work so that you can, you know, it's, it's how you steer and guide the well with, you know, direction and inclination and steerable motors. And, um, and so he put me in charge of that kind of amazingly. And I like to believe that I did a good job um, because he didn't ever rip me off of it. And, you know, things started to change. The business unit went from, um, you know, it was a small business unit. We had a handful of engineers, whether we had a few rigs or a lot of rigs, we always had a pretty tight knit team. Um, a lot of stuff started shaking up as we started growing. Um, and, you know, part of me thinks that I was just kind of young and stubborn and I got tired of it quickly because I, you know, you always think the grass is greener. Sure. Um, I wouldn't look back and wish I did anything differently because like I said, I like where I am today. Yeah. Um, but I definitely shook it up probably in a little bit of an immature way, but I'm glad I took the risk because sometimes that is what it's about. And so the team grew immensely. Um, I felt like maybe some of the culture was, uh, was, was dying and I really liked the way things were. Um, and that might just be me being naive, yeah. but, um, I really did enjoy it there. And at the same time, um, a company called Endeavor Energy Resources, was uh, who is the uh, the largest private 
producer in the country. Um, they're the second largest acreage holder in uh, the Midland Basin to Pioneer. And um, so I was getting recruited by them from somebody that we know from you know family ties. And he had just recently gone over there and I was getting recruited. And I liked the idea of going back to a you know, a small company. That's what I liked about EOG. We had this decentralized district and we operated as a, as a, you know, a tight knit group that got things done. And I kind of wanted to get back to that, to where you could sit in a room and, and get everything done you wanted to get done. And so I went over there in, um, let's see, January of 2018. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, I, I, I resigned at EOG on January 2nd and I was supposed to start like a week later at Endeavor but uh, they asked me because of some other outside forces, I came in the next day. So I didn't really get any time off. But, you know, I'm really glad I did that for a year because I didn't have any Midland Basin experience. All of my experiences in the Delaware Basin. And for the people that don't know the difference, it's drastically different basins. There's similar horizons that you explore. But, you know, in terms of the approach and the difficulties and where you find your efficiencies, they're very different. So um, I went over to Midland Basin for a year. Um, had anywhere from you know two to three rigs running um, under my watch and my supervision, so uh, that was fun. Uh, I, you know, did some good work. I made some bad decisions. I learned some lessons. Um, it's not exactly the same as what I was used to in the Delaware. Um, but anyways, yeah. So I, I went over to to go explore that, and you know, unfortunately, I don't think uh, the culture I was expecting is what was there, and so I made a, a year obligation to them. And uh, after a year, I, I decided to go kind of explore other avenues. I knew it wasn't somewhere where I saw myself long-term and um, I decided to explore opportunities when the opportunities were there. Uh, and so once you left uh, Endeavor, you're now at a directional company and, and you've been there for what, almost a year and a half now? Yeah, almost a year and a half. And so it's um, very different than what you were doing, right? Yeah, no, it's incredibly different. Uh, instead of kind of designing and execution um, and surveillance, I'm now in like a high level operations management role um, for the whole organization. And um, I've never had this many people, uh, you know, under my watch and uh, learning those lessons as a manager was difficult last year, but I think I got through most of them. And I think I developed some good uh, hard and soft skills when it comes to managing. and so but yeah, I, I always I always admired the service side because I was somebody on the operator side. Um, I always knew that we couldn't do it without them. I mean, I was somebody I was a believer in that. I was a believer in, you know, good quality equipment, good quality performance and good quality relationships. And however you order those is kind of the individual. But um, I never had any kind of uh, sour taste in my mouth to go into the service side. Uh, I never could have imagined that it was this, I guess, difficult Yeah, because um, it is very challenging, especially when you come up on the other side. And so. so I know since you're doing different work, it seems like your workload has changed. You know, what does a typical day for you look like? What time are you up? What time, you know, before the pandemic, were you going into the office um, when you came home? Uh, you know, long days, right? Yeah. You know, before all this stuff started, um, my typical week also includes, you know, some level of traveling. I probably travel 25, 30% of the time before all this stuff started, started. But when I'm here in Midland, my typical day, I wake up at 445, um, you know, feed the dog, let her out, go take a shower, get ready, go to Starbucks, grab my coffee. And I'm in the office by six. Yeah. Um, I go through everything and prepare my day until about 730. Then I have an operations meeting with everyone. Um, and then, you know, depending on the day, it's, um, uh, you know, whether it's running around and, um, you know, uh, interacting with customers or dealing with issues or just, you know, some paperwork, whatever, whatever needs to get done, you know, yeah. sometimes things just need to get addressed. But, um, I like to say that the rest of my days are kind of a c- controlled chaos. I have a decent amount of an idea of what's going to happen for the rest of that day. But, you know, because you are drilling wells and you have, let's say 10 customers, 20 rigs, and, you know, 16 drilling engineers to deal with that any moment, something can go wrong, something might not be perfect, um, or somebody 
you know, need you to look some into something for them or what have you. And so stuff can pop up pretty yeah. unannounced and quickly that consume a lot of time. And so, um, but usually it's, 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 it's coordinating the orchestra of, um, you know, whether it's servicing the tools, building tools, buying new equipment, servicing the, the customers, um, account relations and management. I mean, it's, it's a fully encompassed position that I have, um, that obviously I, I really had no experience in, in any of it when I showed up a year and a half ago. Yeah. And so speaking of chaos, we're kind of living in a pretty chaotic time with not only just the pandemic, but it seems like everyone's professional lives are pretty crazy as well. And so not only, you know, we're all aware that the market has suffered pretty severely, but it seems that oil and gas has taken a pretty heavy hit, um, especially. And so I just wanted you to touch touch on, you know, what is going on? Why is the industry kind of where it is right now? And then also with the news of what was it? OPEC is going to cut 10 million. 10 million. Euros, 10, and, and discuss what the, what, who OPEC is, what they do and, and what the importance of that cut is. Yeah. So, you know, OPEC, I'm sure most people watching this know who they are, but you know, it's a group of countries that, that, together encompass a massive amount of the world's production of oil and um, OPEC plus includes some other countries as well but basically what 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 they're able to do <clears throat> because you can define as a cartel or an alliance or whatever you want but they're able to make agreements with each other to only have certain quotas or you know reduce their production or increase their production so they can drive the commodity price and so they have an awful lot of control because they've got a critical mass of increasing and decreasing. It's not just like if the U.S. wants to decrease, it's kind of like uh, throwing a deck chair off the Titanic because there's 100 million barrels a, a, a day produced and we do 12 million of it. If we knock a million barrels out, it'll do an imbalance, but it's, it's, not, it's not so drastic. Right. Um, it'll still affect the commodity price, but if you have um, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Russia all cut 10 million barrels, let's say, then it can make a bigger effect because they can do it all together. They can convince each other to do it together yeah. um, and figure out who can afford to do more or less. And, you know, we don't have that luxury in the U.S., although, you know, there's a lot of articles about the Texas Railroad Commission considering quotas and, and caps to production to try to ease some of the extreme growth that we've seen that have caused, that has caused some of this volatility. But you know, in essence, the, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 outbreak, it started to disrupt production or not production, um, future consumption and demand. Yep. So, you know, China is one of the fastest growing largest countries in the world. And when their demand was already down because a lot of their growth was already starting to taper off in terms of what, what the, um, the analysts thought they would be growing at. And when coronavirus happened, it further impaired their growth rate, their estimated growth rate, which is what all of the futures of demand is kind of relies on is Chinese growth because the rest of the world is going to develop and the rest of the world is going to grow, but at not nearly the pace of China, which has like one sixth of the people in the world. Right. And um, so when coronavirus happened, there was already kind of a supply and demand um, imbalance uh, starting to occur. And then coronavirus happened and the future supplies really got questioned of what are the future demand was in, in massive question. And so that impacted oil prices because the future demand isn't there theoretically. Yeah. And then, um, you know, and then Saudi Arabia and OPEC or not OPEC, Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, you know, they can't come to an agreement on what to do to stabilize prices in this, in this environment. And so Saudi Arabia, you know, they announced that they're going to flood the market with cheap oil. And um, it really, that news hit on like a Friday after the closing bell and on Sunday, night when it opened up oil went from like what was already 40 bucks in the coronavirus like the beginning of the epidemic went yep. down to 27 um you know when it opened up and i think and, i think um levi's company like went down 72 percent yeah no no everyone's getting hit really hard yeah. um especially for the companies that just made recent acquisitions that have some debt on their books let's say um and so there's some that are going to be much more healthy through this than others, but yep. what it comes down to is it limits your amount of CapEx that you can, that you can deploy. And uh, what my service provides is a CapEx intensive 
part of the industry, which is the drilling portion. Yep. Um, you know, there's drilling, completions, and equipping. And besides actually acquiring the the land, those are the largest pieces of capex that you have, sure. or acquiring the the resources. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird place. You know, Midland is one of those towns that has slowed down a little bit because, but because we have so many people that are critical workers uh, in the you know infrastructure definition yep. of oil and gas. You know, it's still it's still busy enough. All the restaurants are closed. Yeah, uh, or they're just doing takeout. But um, you know, the rig counts dropped. I think. 60 or 70 here in the past couple of weeks yeah um just in in the permian i believe and so that's that's a you know almost 20 percent reduction in a couple of weeks and i think it's just going to continue to happen for a little while um unless we see some kind of relief on commodity prices because sure. of the opec deal so yeah time will tell and you know hopefully we can get through this virus in general and you know the economy can kind of start picking up because you know it's going to going to impact a lot of people not only from a health standpoint but also you've got to pay bills and you know they don't have an income health insurance stuff like that but last question before we kind of get into some more lighter topics you know do you have a five-year plan and 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 roughly what is it well you you know these things uh, it's hard to have a five-year plan that doesn't shift continuously with the way things have been in my five years out of college um but you know, I, I, I see myself staying in Midland. I see myself continuing to work for Intrepid. I think, you know, the company I work for is uh, is very strong. I, it's been around a long time. Um, we're one of the only Midland centralized companies uh, on the market. And um, because the directional business, which I participate in, is a rather fragmented and, uh, you know, to be quite honest, it's bifurcated. So there's there's a very small group. There's, let's say there's 85 competitors in total in the space and there's 800 rigs. Yep. Well, there's, there's about, and there's really only 700 rigs now. There's about, um, let's say a short list of, of 20 out of the 85 that are kind of the top tier, uh, whether it's performance or how they manage their business or their longevity or their gravitas, whatever you want to say, there's a top 20 out of 80 and the, the rest are, um, are really there they really, they take up space. and I, I really don't see them having an easy time surviving in this environment. And so, um, you know, our goal is to survive, stay as healthy as possible um, and be ready for things when things pick back up. Sure. Uh, we have a massive amount of, of inventory and assets from the last, you know, little micro boom that we had out here. And so we're positioned well to be ready um, while others might let, um, you know, some of their, their, their assets or their activities or however you want to define it, they might let them kind of go away a little bit or some of their support. So we're, we're trying to keep ourselves positioned um, so that when this turns around, which the longer this downturn lasts, the bigger in my mind, the, the, the micro boom or the little boom we go through after this will be. So the longer the, it's bad, the better it will be good. Um, the more correction that will take place, the longer it's bad. And I don't want it to be bad forever, but I think that some of this is needed. It was getting actually a little silly out here uh, at the end of last year. Sure. So, uh, cool. All right. Well, perfect. I mean, I think I, I for one, wanted to have you on uh, to Trailblazing Text for multiple reasons. One, this is my first go. But second, um, you know, I think you have a very interesting story. You've had a lot of success at a very young age. You're uh, 26. You turn 27 next month. Um, but like you said, there were some self-inflicted, um, obstacles that you had to overcome. There were some things out of your control, um, but you never gave up. And so I think that's a message that a lot of people could hear, especially new graduates, people that are looking for jobs. Um, it's going to be a grind. It's not going to be easy. It might require some sacrifice and, you know, depending on where you are in your life, that may or may not be easy, uh, or easier. Like you were single out of college, you can pack up your bags and you can go to Midland, right? Someone with a family, it's a little bit different. So the situation is well, definitely- I was single shortly after college. <laughs> single shortly after college, correct. Um, all right. So kind of first thing I have to ask you, have you watched Tiger King? I have. I, I turned it on almost by mistake to check it out. And I don't know, it's eight not. hours later, we were done dumpster fire right like absolute madness do you think carol baskin killed her husband yeah the uh 
the sardine oil comment really sealed the deal for me in terms of my suspicion. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that Carol Baskin is involved with the, uh, the disappearance of her husband. Um, um, and I, I also know. don't think it's, uh, it's unlikely that Joe Exotic was actually trying to kill her. Oh, 100%. He yeah, they're both, they're both out of their minds. Um, but one character that I feel like that is the biggest wild card that didn't get as much coverage as like I would have liked to see was Doc. The guy with like- Oh, with the multiple wives, yeah. Yeah, uh, that, guy, that guy skipped me out, but he's definitely killed some people, I feel like, as well. I feel like they've all murdered people. Yeah, he seems like somebody that would teach at the Marietta College Geology Department. <laughs> but they don't murder people. No, but they don't murder people, and they usually only have one spouse. Um, I don't know. You know, it's uh, he had probably what I could tell was the uh, the most legitimate operation that was going on, and then they started getting into the multiple wives and the polygamy, you know, uh, the, the the boob jobs, and <laughs> all the requirements that he had of the girls that worked there that became his uh, his romancers. So it's it's an awfully interesting story that he has, and he he's he's so humble about it that you don't realize it's coming that he has multiple wives. You just think he just you know maybe he just likes hiring pretty girls or something. Yeah, it's weird that that they're all one family, and he's got a house on the property for each one of them. Um, he could have his own show like sister wives with yes. the or something. Yes, you know? yes. Um, okay, so what else are you watching though, besides Tiger King obviously, or reading or occupying oh, your time? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I did watch, uh, I haven't watched in a long time, but I watched Austin Powers Gold Member last Ooh, night. I love yeah. gold. I love gold. But um, I don't know, I'm having a tough time finding stuff on Netflix. Um, Oh, I will I will tell you that before the pandemic, if you haven't watched this, I would recommend it. And it's called The Good Place. They have totally finished all their seasons. It's the last season's done. Um, I think you actually have to buy the last season on Amazon. But once you watch like the first four on Netflix, you'll realize that it's a good one. It's actually a little bit of like a chick show, but I'll what's it about? It. Um, it's about a woman that dies gets sent to heaven, but her heaven just doesn't seem right, and it actually really annoys her, and I can't <laughs> tell you any more because it'll ruin the uh, the first season, I think, if I tell any more, but um, The Good Place is a really good one. Um, I've been playing a lot of pool by myself, yeah. actually. I've been playing myself in pool at my house. Um, I don't know. You know, I haven't been... I'll kind of turn on the TV. I watched 2012 last night because I just, you know, it's a pandemic. Not pandemic, but it's a... Um, uh, what, what would you call that? Like world, dis world yeah. disruption kind of movie. I also watched World War Z the other day because I thought that was appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, getting in the mood of I, apocalypse. Yeah, I watched the movie Contagion as well. So yeah. I'm like really I'm, into it. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm letting myself get worried probably more than I need to since I am self-isolating for the most part. But uh, yeah, I'm, oh. I'm watching those kind of movies that give you anxiety. Okay. Well, if you want to watch something that won't give you anxiety, that is interesting, though, is a documentary called McMillions. And it's about um, kind of the mob family, the Colombo family, and some other folks that scammed uh, the McDonald's uh, Monopoly game, like, for a decade. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the previews for that. Yeah, it's actually an incredible scheme. Like the and There the were actually, like, no winners for, like, a decade. Right. But this family or kind of these loosely related people constantly were winning over time. Um, and it's actually pretty incredible. Like if there wasn't a whistleblower, no, there's no way they would have ever caught on to this. But it's a pretty crazy thing. And I was talking to Levi and I was like, I don't remember any of this happening, like the trial or anything. Because the trial was right around 9-11, right? It, yeah, exactly. So it kind of got over... Mm -hmm. um obviously um uh, just kind of overtaken by what had happened on 9-11 but still crazy um I don't remember how many episodes probably roughly eight but entertaining nonetheless I mean when you get the mob and McDonald's together like it's a pretty good story um oh I will tell you I, I watched the third season of Ozark I was a big Ozark fan and it took him forever to come out with the third season and I just two finished years. it two yeah years. And, I'm, and I'm gonna restart it and watch because you know, it takes a little while to pick up, but I'm gonna, yep. that's, that's one thing I'm going to do. I'm just going to watch it all through because it took so long to come out with season three that 
really you forget a lot of the little details and so I might I might binge it a couple episodes a night over the course of a couple weeks yeah we finished Ozark last week or maybe the other day I don't know time I can't keep track of time but um yeah I loved the first season eh, on the second season and then the last half of the third season I really liked um I like Jonah. I like how Jonah's character is developing. And so, you know, they haven't been renewed for season four yet. I would imagine they do because the way it ends is kind of so open-ended. Um, but yeah, Ozark is another good one. Um, so yeah, I, I, I personally like Charlotte. You would like Charlotte. Um, <laughs> you know what though? Charlotte's face, like she's a beautiful girl. Charlotte's face though, like her bone structure, I feel like if you would like make those mache masks and put it on her face and pull it off, it would look like that guy from Saw, Jigsaw, the guy that's like, want to play a game? Yeah. Like go back and look at her and you could literally put like red dots on her cheeks and then she would be the Saw doll. Yeah. It's like she's part Great Dane or something. (laughs) That's all. Okay, so outside of um, Netflix, um, you know, what are you doing during quarantine to, you know, remain healthy? Um, You know, how many walks do you and Stella um, go on? Do you do anything with your diet? Are you drinking? Are you not drinking? Like, how are you just trying not to have your body just disintegrate? Um, Well, so for the first couple weeks of quarantine, I did find myself... uh, sometimes cracking a cold one a little too early on a work, work day when I was sitting there emailing. So I kind of just thought to myself, I, I tried to be, uh, well, I didn't try. I was successful in being sober during January, but I didn't really take the dieting portion of it appropriately uh, um, serious. So I ended up actually gaining weight, not drinking for a whole month in January, which is actually incredible. Uh, <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. It's, it's just how crappy I ate. But, um, so I decided because I'm going to be at the house and be at the house a lot. Uh, I don't need to be just like sitting here drinking to pass the time. So, um, I decided just not to drink for April. Uh, so that's made me kind of more productive all the way through the evening. You know, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll sit here and do some chores as the TV's on for a while and stuff like that. Um, I'm also not really, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really ordering any food. Like very rarely I might, I might go drive through the Chick-fil-A line oh, yeah. to get some grilled nuggets. But besides that, I'm pretty much just cooking everything at the house. Nice. Um, and I go to the grocery store like once every 10 days, so I don't have to go very often. And um, yeah, I'm doing you what you taught me, which is the macros. So I, I basically just track my fat, my carbs, and my protein. And there's kind of a distribution that you try to hit um, that also equates to a certain amount of calories. And you got to also drink a bunch of water. And Yeah. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, I did the whole macro counting back in 2018, like very seriously for six months and I lost like almost 30 pounds. And so, you know, it's a great way to one, just keep a hold on your diet, whether you want to lose weight, whether you want to gain weight, or if you just want to maintain, because then all of a sudden you realize like, oh, this bag of chips is x y and z or i grab this handful of peanuts or candy and then you kind of it makes you very hyper aware of the mindless eating or the unnecessary eating that you do but at the same time when you're trying to lose weight you can still eat what you want right you just have to it's like a puzzle make it fit your number so if you want chick-fil-a you might blow out your fat numbers for the rest of the day but you know there's ways you can for dinner yeah but it's a sacrifice yeah yeah and i i enjoyed it i did it through one thing i hate though is you cannot, um, you really can't eat any red meat. Uh, it blows your fat. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even a, like an eight ounce filet. Yep. With like no bacon wrapped on it or anything, just a regular filet, just, just seared. It still has probably, you know, an eight ounce filet would have, I don't know, 70, 80 grams of protein Yeah. and maybe 90. And then, um, it's still going to have like 50 grams of fat in there. Even yeah, it's a filet, but if you get a ribeye, it's like, you know, for every hundred grams of protein, it's a hundred grams of fat, you know? Yeah. So it's I difficult because I do love steak. And so my, my birthday's here in like three weeks and I'm going to have a big, big juice. You should though, ribeye. but that, that's the kind of beauty between macros. And I did a program called Stronger You. I don't know if you officially ever did Stronger You, but um, you kind of realize what, what your priorities are, right? Like, and, and sometimes it's worth it to blow it out, right? Like your birthday, but you kind of realize just because you go out to dinner 
or you go out doesn't mean it has to be like celebration, right? Like you can still eat like a normal person and not like blow everything out. Yeah. Um, like last anyway. night, you know, I love, I kind of want a burger. So I made some turkey pesto burgers last yeah. night, just put in the fridge so I can heat them up and eat them when I want probably tomorrow. And then I've got, uh, uh, I've got some chicken that I cooked yesterday and I just cooked some protein pasta. They've got like the chickpea roasted yeah, protein yeah. pasta and I just try to stick to that. So if I'm going to eat all those carbs, at least I can get something else for it too. But, um, and, and so speaking of Chick-fil-A, I have to ask you, Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich or Popeye's chicken sandwich? So I have yet to have a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Mm. Um, we but do I have some say. Popeye's in Midland, but um, I, I have not had Popeye's in about three years because I was driving from Midland to Dallas and I stopped in Abilene at the TA truck stop and ate truck stop Popeye's <laughs> and got violently ill off of um, truck Popeyes. stop Popeye's to where I couldn't leave Dallas for about four days because um, I was afraid of being more than about seven and a half feet away from the bathroom. So, so um, I, I still have yet to have Popeye's. Um, except mashed potatoes. Except always mashed the potatoes. mashed potatoes on the holidays because that's what us Metcalfs do. We go buy our potatoes. I like it. Um, okay. And then I guess, you know, you're, you're trying to eat better. You're not really drinking. Um, I know you have some limitations with your back, but you know, are you, what are you doing for exercise? Is it just walking Stella who's on the screen, by the way, when she was a small little baked potato puppy? Yeah. She's a little cutie in that pic. Um, you know, probably not being as active as I want to be. Yeah. Um, that's probably one thing. I mean, I would say two things that with all this time I do have, um, if I was more efficient of a person or if I forced myself to be more efficient, the two things I wished I would accomplish are probably keep the house a little cleaner yep. and be more active. Yep. Um, besides that, I think I am accomplishing, you know, everything else. My house isn't a pigsty or anything, but, you know, I need to sweep because I have a dog and maybe take some boxes out to the dumpster, stuff like that. So I've got some things I need to do in the house and I put those off and, uh, I probably need to go on some nice long walks. The weather's been about 80% of the time. It's been beautiful. So I, nice. I haven't really taken advantage of it um, like I should have. And you have those two guests behind you, um, your antlered friends. Yeah. Are you, did you kill them? Yeah. So this one was shot on the King Ranch in South Texas. Yep. Um, and then this one was shot outside of Roswell. And so this is a whitetail. Got and it. This is a pronghorn, which is the fastest animal in North America. So I saw, shot that um, outside of Roswell, New Mexico. It's probably the coolest shot I ever had. So that's everything else was kind of like, ah, we just went and shot a deer. That was like a real hunting trip that I, I still am proud that I even hit him. It was so nice. far away. And, so. and speaking of trips, um, I know a lot of things have been canceled for people, but do you have anything coming up and, and where would you like to go if, you know, you had anywhere to go? Well, I was supposed to go on a bachelor party in March and then we were supposed to have a wedding uh, in three weekends. And then we were supposed to, I was supposed to have another wedding in beginning of June and all of those have been canceled or pushed. And so really the next thing I have planned is Katie Rose, our cousin's wedding um, at the end of July. Yep. Um, and, uh, we got that awesome beach house right there next to the venue. So that's gonna be fun. Um, besides that, I don't have anything planned for the rest of 20. Yep. And that's because I thought my year was going to be pretty front loaded with activities. And so I didn't have anything in the fall planned. And yep. maybe if something popped up, I'd do it, but I didn't have any hardcore plans. So now the weddings, the bachelor parties, they're all getting pushed to the you know middle of the summer, second half of the summer or the fall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe it'll be good timing to, um, you know, we'll do maybe a destination Thanksgiving and a destination Christmas or something this year because we, we, we haven't, haven't we're not going to have the opportunity to do a whole lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I definitely feel for all the people that have to push back their weddings. Like, uh, our cousin had to, it was supposed to be May 1st. Now it's July 31st. Um, still though, it'll be the summer down the shore. So my, our extended family all lives in New Jersey, except for our one uncle that, that Jamie was talking about that lives in Louisiana. Um, so that'll be cool getting to at least get to the beach and stuff like that. Um, but don't forget, Levi still wants to go to Mongolia with you to go catch, what are they called? Tymon? Tynan? Tymon? Tymon, but they're, they're like these massive Mongolian Tymon that are like a hundred pounds. Yeah. So 
Poor guy. I think we need commodity prices to improve before we go do that. I agree. I agree with that. All right. So last thing, you know, kind of coming up a little over an hour here, you know, hindsight's 2020, would you have done anything differently? And I think you've kind of touched on this for the most part, you don't regret anything, but there were some obstacles that were self-inflicted. Um, and what would you say to anyone, you know, graduating, uh, in May? Yeah. You know, I, I, I say, I don't regret anything. I, I guess I don't regret any of the career moves that I made or, you know, I can look past some of the, the mistakes I made that uh, maybe cost me an internship or something like yeah. that. Cause at the end of the day, I do like where I am professionally. I will say um, to anyone out there who's going into the workforce, especially in how volatile of a market this is. Um, one thing I wish I did more of is uh, probably save my money a little bit more deliberately. Um, I, you know, I'm in a good position, but you always think of, you know, man, I wish I didn't waste that or do that, or that was pretty stupid or whatever. Right. So, um, you know, be wise when you do get an opportunity to set yourself up because, you know, nothing is guaranteed. And, you know, first, your first opportunity or not first opportunity, your first objective, you know, shouldn't be, um, go buy that nice truck. It's, I'm going to go build up a six month stockpile of money that I can use if something happens. So, um, but besides that, you know, be, uh, you know, persevere, still realize guys that um, half of the rig count is in Midland and over a third of the rigs in the country are managed out of this one town and they're managed by um, not these giant, you know, multinational companies, but a lot of small independents, uh, private equity companies. There's a lot of service companies that have headquarters here. Some service companies that are only out here and not in Houston and um, one of the smartest things that I did, and I think some of the smartest things that I saw other Marietta people do, um, was move to Midland, even if it was for like a mediocre opportunity, because it just got them here so that they could leverage that into something better. Um, I, I seriously don't think that there's any place better to be, even in $23 oil like it is today. Midland is still better than anywhere else. Um, it, it's... Uh, and I would say don't shy away from Midland just because it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, Midland has some of the nicest people and it's a relatively young community because everyone's from San Antonio, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Denver, Houston. It's a bunch of young people between 25 and 40. Um, the housing market is crazy, but that's relative. It's not any cheaper or it's not any more expensive than living in Houston or Dallas. It's actually cheaper. So that's good. Um, you just don't get all the amenities like those towns give you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not bad. Uh, I think I think Midland gets a bad rap, and uh, definitely there are some things that if I had, you know, the almighty power, I'd change about Midland. But you know, that's it is okay. what it is. It is what it is. Um, this is where and, the security is. And what and and you know, stepping outside of in your industry, right? Knowing what you know, with kind of the stumbling that you had to take when you graduated, you know, just in general, anyone entering the workforce, out, you know, whether it's oil and gas or any other industry, you know what would be kind of your little elevator pitch? Yeah, I mean, this is way worse than when I graduated. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the honest truth. But I would say almost be stubborn about not having an opportunity until you find one. Um, be willing to make sacrifices, be willing to uh, almost uh, do anything for anyone, anywhere, um, in order to get your first opportunity that you think makes sense uh, yeah. for your progression. So. Uh, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Humility is key. You, yeah. know, you had your goals, you had your, your wishes and your dreams, but you know, unfortunately those are going to need to be a little bit more malleable um, to get your feet on the ground. Sure. Cool. Well, you know, that kind of brings us over an hour. I wasn't sure if we were going to be 30 minutes, an hour or, or what have you, but we're almost at an hour and 10, but um, I appreciate you coming on, giving me the opportunity to take my first step into the podcast world, if you will. And like I said, I think you have a great story. Um, that can be useful to all sorts of people, whether it's they're going into your industry or not, just the whole idea of persevering, like you had mentioned. Um, so yeah, so I'll, I'll get this out there and, you know, hopefully share your story. Um, hopefully you become maybe a contact or at least an influential voice uh, to someone, but you know, that's all I got. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the weather's like, but we're still snowing here. So we're just going to kind of hang out and kind of enjoy Easter and get ready for the week. You know, I will say, Brittany, if I have one recommendation for you, uh, <laughs> do tell. That I would like you to change your podcast name 
to something that sounds like a SoundCloud rapper. Like Britney or, Uzi or Lil Uzi Pio. Lil yeah. Uzi Lil cool. Uzi Text. I'll have to rethink that. I'll have to think my rap name podcast, but I think I might stick with Trailblazing Text, if that's okay with you. I mean, that's all right. Okay. Look, well, it's just my opinion. Just one man's opinion in West Texas. That's it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. And again, appreciate you coming on and have a good Easter. You too. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye.